Thank you for joining us for this episode of the IPI Policy Basics Podcast. Today's topic is, what is a supply chain? We're coming to you today from the studios of Salem Media Group in Dallas, Texas. I'm Tom Giovanetti, the president of the Institute for Policy Innovation. With our IPI Policy Basics podcast, we are building an audio reference library on basic policy concepts and topics for those who want to learn and understand how to think about policy from a limited government free market standpoint, or for those who simply need to get up to speed on a particular issue. Today, I'm joined in studio by IPI resident scholar, Dr. Merrill Matthews, and remotely by Professor Daniel Ogden, a new research fellow with us here at the Institute for Policy Innovation. And today we're going to talk with Professor Ogden about supply chains. So, uh, Dan, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tom. Uh, just to let your listeners know, I am teach at Baylor University. Um, I teach a course in the business school uh, called Global Trade Compliance as part of our supply chain focus there in the business school. And so I deal with uh, supply chain issues all the time from a from a international perspective. Dan, we have we have heard a lot about supply chains over the past several weeks or months, actually. And I suspect a lot of people out there listening to the news saying supply chain. What are they, they keep to, they're talking about these these holdups and bumps in the supply chain. What, what are they talking about? So that's what we're hoping you'll be able to help us ex, uh, explain. Yeah, it's not just the people listening. It's me, too. Yes. I, <laughs> you know, I, uh, I, I it seems to be about 10 or 15 years ago, I started hearing about young people in college majoring in supply chain management, and I just had no concept of what that even meant. And now it seems like for about the past year, year and a half, everything that goes wrong in society is attributable to supply chain, man- supply chain problems. I mean, if you get stood up on a date, you know, they blame the supply <laughs> supply chain problem for weren't, that. Weren't enough girls going around. Right. So, so yeah. Dan, sort of t- talk us through the whole concept of a supply chain, uh, key, key concepts and things like that. It is interesting. I uh, you know, and I think I'll mention, talk about COVID in just a second, but I think COVID kind of just brought a lot of this issue to the forefront. And, you know, my community group at my church, I have people talking about supply chain that previously they may have thought, I have to go to Home Depot, and get some type of chain for a supply. I mean, <laughs> this is a new this, this is a new concept, but it's not, it's not really a new business practice. It's just a new way to frame it. So what is supply chain? Well, basically, it's the process by which, uh, take, for example, a. Uh, I saw a video recently, Wall Street Journal had done on a, a, a how uh, somebody orders a, uh, a USB charger for this cell phone from Amazon. It shows up at the door. It's like, wow, it's there. How does it get there? Well, it's, it's really look at the whole process from you know, you go back to the raw materials, someone has to mine those raw materials and process them, and then they get supplied to a to uh, a manufacturer, quite often very uh, many manufacturers who are contract with perhaps a final product manufacturer, particularly in the electronics area, you'll have different components and the same thing with the automobile industry. It's amazing if you look at the number of suppliers used to manufacture automobiles in the thousands because you have different suppliers who focus on a particular different piece of the car. And so then they all get assembled, manufactured by the manufacturer. 
Okay, that's fine. Now you got a product, but now you got to get it out to the consumer. Whether you're ordering it from Amazon, whether you're going to a big box store like Best Buy, it's got to get from the manufacturer to that retailer or to you, to your door. And of course, today with the globalization of manufacturing, it's probably coming from China as much as any place. So how does it get from China to the U.S.? It's got to be go through this whole logistic process, get shipped, and then it comes into what are called in the United States, or now they're called fulfillment centers. Amazon has these warehouses all over the U.S. Then you order from Amazon, it gets shipped to you, and you finally rise to your front door. Well, the point is, if you look at all the different uh, touch points, so to speak, from the time the stuff gets raw materials from the earth to the time it's delivered to your doorstep, this little USB charger for a phone, there's a whole lot of people, a whole lot of companies have been involved in this. And so, you know, centuries ago, manufacturing was done by craftsmen, and they did everything. Uh, but, but starting really with Henry Ford and the innovations he made in manufacturing, you started to have more and more companies, more and more suppliers, more and more distributors involved. And so now, in terms of any product you might buy on Amazon, you might buy from Best Buy. There's a whole bunch of intermediate steps have occurred. And of course, all it takes is something to mess it up to whether it's a geopolitical event, whether it's a fire in some manufacturing plant, whether it's weather, whether it's a, a virus. All it takes is at one point in that whole process for something to bring things to a halt. It could be a dock worker strike in the U.S. And all of a sudden, what happens is the, the way the supply chain works when everything is flowing smoothly. So think of a conveyor belt. Uh, if uh, Think about when you go to the, to the airport and you're getting your luggage. What happens when you're getting your luggage if one suitcase gets stuck in that conveyor belt, everything gets backed up. And that's basically what happens. And that's what the supply chain, where, when stuff doesn't get delivered, is because at some point, and that whole process, some event has occurred that's followed up everything and everything is backed up. So, Dan, so uh, that's the that's the most basic way I know how to explain it. Dan, my, my recollection is that companies used to keep quite a bit of inventory on hand. And then you had Walmart come along. And as I as I recall, one of their innovations was I think they called it just in time inventories, wasn't it? Where they they right. did they didn't keep a lot of inventory on hand, but they had that those inventories coming in regularly. So the if you have a lot of inventories, you've got to have a warehouse, you've got to pay for that warehouse, you've got to uh f have people in the warehouse and so forth. And so if you can eliminate that or reduce that dramatically, then you save a lot of money. And my my understanding is that's what Walmart did. And I've heard since the pandemic started, some people talking about, well, we, we sort of embraced the Walmart model of just-in-time inventories where nobody had a huge stock of inventories. And we may have to rethink that if we're going to have a lot of supply chain glitches. Tell us a little bit about that that issue of keeping inventory and the, the pros and cons of it. Well, of course, at universities like Baylor and other universities, uh, that's what these supply chain courses are all about. How do you optimize your supply, your supply chain? And JIT or JIT, as, as it's called, yeah, that became kind of the rage about 20, 25 years ago. The whole idea is, as you say, cutting costs, maybe not having to have such a 
warehouse. But JIT only works when you have a supply chain, when that conveyor belt is flowing smoothly. We don't have someone's suitcase, so to speak, getting stuck and clogging everything up. And so one of the things that companies now are looking at is getting away from a sole source supply, multi-source suppliers. So if you're a manufacturer, let's say you're making uh, uh, the this little uh, uh, cell phone, you know, USB cell phone charger. Well, uh, for some of the chips, you may look to have two or three different suppliers. Maybe you've got one in Taiwan, you got one in China, maybe you have one in Japan or even domestically in the United States. That way, if some event such as a fire or natural disaster, military action, uh, economic actions, whatever, uh, clog up one end, you can still turn to someone else. And so uh, if you're going to operate a very lean operation such as JIT, then you're managing your supply chain uh, to the extent you can is, is critical. But the fact of the matter is there's so much that is outside of your control. And, and of course, for a retailer like a big box store like Best Buy or uh, what have you, uh, you know, they're totally dependent upon other companies' actions to keep product coming into their store. So I, I know, Tom, you mentioned you were at a, a, a factory a little while back, a few couple of weeks ago, and uh, you asked someone about the supply chain, and he took you, and he said, we're, we're, over, we're, we're buying more stuff than we're, that we need right now in our process because we don't know, we don't have the confidence that six months down the road, we're going to be able to get the the inventory in that we need to stock. So we're actually buying more. And, and it's it's very similar to hoarding. When you have a hurricane coming, everybody's going out to buy supplies, right? It's, it's kind of the same type of thing in the supply chain where companies now are seeking to 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 buy more than they need because they just don't know when the next shock is going to occur. You know, Dan, when you were describing all of the complexity in the in manufacturing and all the different parts and all that sort of thing for the USB charger, uh, I just want to interject for our listeners that that we did a Policy Basics podcast on the issue of no one knows how to make a pencil. And it's really this same thing. It's the famous iPencil essay where somebody has to Somebody has to grow the rubber and process the rubber for the eraser. Metallurgists have to do the little metal ferrule. You have graphite mining and processing that makes the lead. You have people who are growing the trees and cutting the trees down for the for the pencil body. You've got people manufacturing the yellow paint. And for something as simple as a pencil, it's almost mind-bogglingly complex, all the different bits of expertise that are needed and all the different sources for all of those materials. So I just want to draw folks' attention to that. The process that you just described, Dan, it seems to me involves an awful lot of transportation. There's 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 parts being shipped, you know, probably from the United States to China, products then being assembled in China and shipped back to the US. You've got ship container shipping, you've got railroads, you've got trucking You've got air freight. So how much of a component in supply chains is this whole issue of transportation? Well, it's huge. And it's not only huge in terms of the country, for example, if you're sourcing from overseas, the country of import, but also it's also uh, the suppliers to your overseas manufacturer. In fact, there's a uh, article I just read this week, again, in the Boston Journal on uh, 
I believe it was it, GM is looking to source their batteries for their electronic or electric vehicles, you know, EV batteries. And they're looking to maybe look now to South Korea rather than Ford gets theirs in China. Well, that's great because South Korea has thought there's less of a perhaps geopolitical risk bringing them in. But their South Korean manufacturer is sourcing some of the, the raw materials from the battery from China anyway, such as these rare earth materials and other stuff. So, you, you know, if, if you go all the way back in the supply chain, all the way back to the raw material phase, it's not just when it, you talk about logistics, it's not just logistics at the, at the country of import. Because we think about stuff getting tied up, and this happened in Long Beach and the LA ports. It's incredible. I actually was several years ago at a chance to be in that area, and it's amazing. They, all these container ships or containers unload them, multi-metal transport, either they put them on a truck or a train. So when we think of logistics and supply chain, yes, we think about the importance in terms of product getting into the U.S. and then be distributed through, yes. But we also need to think about it at the other end as well. And logistics there are also important. So there's no question that logistics management is a huge component of supply chain and a lot of the issues we've had recently uh, in this country have been because of logistics uh, problems. Okay, Dan, that raises the, the really interesting question here. As you're pointing out, the trade issue is is really global. I mean, it's you, something may go through several countries before it finally is a finished product that we buy at some store uh, or online. But that raises the question with some of the turmoil that's going on. There's been some discussion about either reshoring companies or friend shoring companies where we say okay we we've got we've got uh, manufacturing going on in Vietnam and China and South Korea and other countries I just got two t-shirts last night I looked to see if they were made in China no they were made in Guatemala <laughs> there th these things are going on and yet there's a movement to say maybe it would be safer to try to unwind a little bit of that chain make sure that the companies that are are building things, especially things with national security interest or the th things that are necessary for us uh, are either made in America or in a, our U.S. territories or perhaps with friendly allies out there. And, and I, 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 some part of me sort of sympathetic with that. Part of me is also these things are changing. Mexico was a friend. It's becoming a little bit less of a friend with AMLO in charge. Uh, some of the countries in South America, Colombia and others are being take over, taken over, not taken over, but they're being voted into They're voting in leftists that may be more friendly to Russia or China than to others. And so it, I'm not even sure friend shoring that you would be able to identify who those friends are long term, even if we wanted to. Yeah, that's that's uh, this term, by the way, friend showing. Uh, Janet Yellen just used this term when she was in, uh, I believe, a South Korea recently or Japan, somewhere in Asia. Yeah, that that's that's a huge issue. And of course, now I know with IPI, and I share the IPI orientation towards free market economics. And if you look at purely from an economic theoretical perspective. You know, without considering what are called exogenous factors, such as geopolitics and other things, it really shouldn't matter where mm -hmm. where stuff is made as long as it, the the economics makes sense. But 
we we live in a real world. And while in theory, I'm, I'm a free market, free trade guy, in reality, I'm also a trade realist. And I know that that things don't always operate the way that free trade theory says in terms of the real world. Adam Smith, of course, who is our you know, uh, godfather of free market economics himself said that uh, national security reasons can, you know, have a legitimate role to play in the country's economic policy. So in terms of then trying to figure out then for a supply chain, where do you locate manufacturing? Uh, You used to, the thinking was, well, labor costs are such a big component of it. So we're going to go to the place where it's the cheapest labor. But for many products now, that's longer the case. Uh, you know, if you're making something that's very low-skilled labor inter- intensive, then then that's going to be your number one source of, of decision-making is where's the lower, lowest labor cost. But where you're making a product where labor costs as a portion of the final cost of, the, of that product is much lower in nature, then, then you're going to be looking at other considerations. Uh, you're going to be looking at, you know, for example, what is the speaking of logistics? How quickly can we get products in, into uh, in, into the U.S.? Uh, you know, our West Coast ports, at least in Southern California, are horribly backlogged. Some other parts of the country, Houston and Jacksonville, you don't face that problem. Now, if you're, you know, if you want to bring stuff into Jacksonville, for example, well, you're probably not going to bring it from China. You can go through the Suez Canal. I'm sorry, not the Suez Canal. Well, you could, I guess, eventually. But you could go through the Panama Canal. Uh, but right now, China actually is controlling the Panama Canal, and that may not be cost effective. So logistics and the ease of getting your product into your country is one factor. And, of course, U.S. allies is another factor. Uh, yes, you talk about Mexico. Uh, you know, right now, Japan and South Korea are, are are very stable U.S. friends. It's unlikely, amazingly, with Japan, they were a bitter enemy, and now they're one of the U.S. closest friends. And so I, I think for those countries, you probably don't have to worry about that particular country doing something to, to interfere with the U.S. like you would in China. And that's what this whole, by the way, decoupling from China is all about. So, but decoupling from one country you know, it's not just a matter of think about going out to a restaurant. You go one particular restaurant, they got an hour wait. You say, yeah, we don't feel like waiting an hour. We'll just go to the guy next door. Hey, he can get us in 10 minutes. We'll go there. Changing your supplier structure is not like just going from one restaurant to another because you have to make sure do you have the labor in that country that other countries are going to go to to produce the product? Are the raw materials there? What's the supply chain structure for your suppliers like there? What is the infrastructure? And so it's it's really a complicated thing. But I think, as I stated earlier, I think one of the things that company is going to start doing more and more is having multi-source suppliers. So they're not just relying upon one country. So yes, maybe we'll still bring some stuff in from China, but we're also going to look at other countries, French shoring, and we're going to look at in the U.S., and, and and also another strategy companies are starting to employ more is to make a product where you're going to sell it. So if you're going to be selling product in China, well, you make your product there. But for products made in the U.S., maybe you come over to Mexico, you do it from there using the MCA. So these are all all very complicated things. But these are things that that companies have to consider 
when making decisions as to where they locate their their manufacturing and their, their supply chain operations. Dan, can I tack on one other topic here that I think is worth discussing briefly? And that is that uh, when I hear politicians in Washington talking about our crumbling infrastructure, uh, I don't buy it. I don't see crumbling infrastructure all over the place. I've always thought that's just an excuse to spend money. But but I am I am apprised, I am told that our transportation infrastructure related to trade really is sort of out of date. My understanding is that our ports in the United States are simply not up to par with the ports of other developing countries that that compared to Singapore South Korea, Japan, places like that, that our ports are still being operated like they were in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, it's my understanding that our railroad infrastructure, similarly, uh, is it has not been modernized to the degree that some other countries have. And the common denominator here seems to be unionism, that the what modernizing these infrastructure, these key infrastructure points, Modernizing it results in fewer people needed, <laughs> fewer less labor to operate right. because because it involves automation. So, to to what degree are some of our supply chain problems due to the to the reality that we have not done a good enough job of modernizing some of these key choke points like our our ports, our intermodal ports, and things like that. I, I agree that that is an issue. Uh, and of course, we're not trying to beat up labor unions. But fact of the matter is that just like uh, when automobiles came into foreign buggy whip manufacturers basically, uh, you know, went out of business, uh, you know, technology is always advancing. Automation is, is always going to be an issue. Um, and then, of course, that raises a lot of different issues for workers for a lot longer. But for the, for the purpose of this discussion, yeah, I think the U.S. is behind other countries, um, but there's a lot of reasons for that. We, we've got such a dynamic internal market in the United States, and we have so many uh, a di- diffusion. We have so many ports available. A lot of other countries, first of all, smaller countries may not have as – they're just not going to have such a large infrastructure, so to speak, to begin with. But also, we've, we've got a multitude – a different ports. We also have a federal system where states, when it comes to local facilities, uh, are many ways responsible for maintaining these ports. And so we have a lot of issues in the United States that we have to deal with in terms of our infrastructure when it comes to logistics that other countries don't, just because of the nature of our geography, the nature of our political system, everything else. But there, I think there does need to be a focus. And when, when you see all these container ships outside of the ports of LA and Long Beach. I, I mean, it's, they're, they're stacked. You could almost walk from ship to ship. If you were a giant, you could walk from <laughs> ship to ship to ship. It's just, it's, it's, it's incredible. And there's no question that, that our transportation system, our multimodal system, we need to have some improvements. And, and there, there is a lot of policy work that needs to be done in that area. One other thing I wanted to mention also, I know our time is running short, is the whole uh, semiconductor chip area. Um, th- this uh, this is a complicated area, but we, we have this bill that was just passed by Congress. And um, one of the controversies that you have in political economics is this whole 
thing called this whole thing called industrial policy. In other words, should a government, should a state assist different parts of the economy or should you just let it go on their own? Again, free market economics says just let it go on its own. But we, we've seen how a shortage of, of, of uh, computer chips has affected the automobile industry, also affects different areas of our economy. And so that's why the impetus for this bill is, do we need to have government assistance to bring chip manufacturing back to the United States? In the 50s and into the 60s, the U.S. was a dominant form chip manufacturing. That's because the semiconductor chip was invented right here in good old Dallas, Texas, by a couple of guys in Texas Instruments. And so the U.S. dominated chip manufacturing. But then when Japan's economy is rebuilt, they began to, to move in that area. And now, of course, the largest chip manufacturer is in Taiwan, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Corporation. Samsung is second. These companies actually have an already announced investments in the United States even before this bill is passed. So is this a case of Congress, you know, shutting the barn door after the horse is already out of the barn, so to speak? Or in this case, I guess it wouldn't be shutting the barn door, but actually providing some incentive for the horse when the horse is already out there, trying to figure out how I can make that, that thing make sense. But the point is, is it necessary? Uh, we already have other manufacturers, Intel and others have announced new chip plants. So I don't, you know, this, this is a hard issue for conservatives and for free market limited government people to deal with. Is, is, this, is this bill a good idea or not? And uh, quite frankly, I've, I've got mixed feelings about it. But I will say this, I think it is important that the United States not rely 100% or 95% on chip manufacturing in other countries because computer chips now are such an essential part of our economic uh, growth and development, our economy. And so this is an area I think not only in commercially, but also certainly for national security really is important to have some local manufacturing done. Well, Dan, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us today. We look forward to doing future episodes on, on trade and international relation issues. So thank you. You can find out more about trade and economic policy at our website at IPI.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast, how about giving us a favorable review on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform? You could also help sponsor these podcasts by becoming a member of IPI's Giving Society. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time.